today on Ag News Daily. I think this still comes down to having adequate choices, and I think you know, as this industry continues to emerge, right, there will be more choices. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, what's going on in your world? Well, Mike, this is take two for the podcast because I had a blonde moment and forgot to record our take one. And it was it was a pretty good one. So hopefully this one goes a little better. Well, yeah. Hope, fingers crossed. I forgot what I said the first one, so this will be just as much a surprise. It certainly will because we don't script anything here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's all just free form. Darn right. Darn right. Keep it lively. Keep it fun, Delaney. Speaking of fun... I was uh, watching on Twitter earlier, saw a bunch of growers out in your part of the world getting out there today. What's the weather update from Iowa? Yes, it certainly is nice here in Iowa. It is sunny. It is no wind. Well, mild wind, I would say, but sunny, warm temperatures. It's almost 70 degrees, and there are definitely folks out planting. Fantastic. We've got a little bit of a more downbeat situation here in Illinois. It's currently about 45 degrees and overcast. Speaking with a couple growers from the central part of the state earlier, and you know, some places got you know three, four, five inches of rain over the past couple of days. They were really hoping for some sun, some heat units, a little bit of wind to kind of dry that ground out and be able to run. But uh, doesn't look like it's going to happen today, lady. Well, another day, another dollar short, I suppose. That's the story of my life. That's for sure. <laughs> Speaking of being another dollar short, the FL industry has been struggling since the start of this COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, it was first hit by the drop in gasoline demand as folks kind of shut in their house and quit going out. Then it was hit again when the Trump administration exempted blenders from the renewable fuel standard. Basically, they no longer have to blend 10% ethanol uh, per the federal law. Uh, administration just said, don't worry about it, and they're not doing it. And then today, they got another smack in the face. Several ethanol plants made investments early in this outbreak to convert a portion of their production over to hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer, of course, is predominantly alcohol, and that's what ethanol is. So they made some investments to be able to handle uh, ethanol for hand sanitizers. Well, you know, the Trump administration came out again today, the FDA saying that uh, they're tightening restrictions on hand sanitizer, particularly those made from ethanol plants, after several tests showed that uh, ethanol-based hand sanitizer violated some of the existing standards for uh, ingredients in hand sanitizer. Uh, Remember, ethanol as we are typically used to manufacturing, is an industrial grade thing now that we're making stuff for human, not consumption. Hopefully, don't go drinking hand sanitizer, folks, but for human use, I guess I should say. Uh, the, the Rules are a little more strict, and FDA is saying that ethanol plants are not currently meeting the requirements, and they are going to tighten those requirements, make it even harder for ethanol plants to hit them, And so this is going to be another blow, especially for those plants that made the investments to produce this stuff. Uh, Now they're basically going to have to shut down. The conversations are ongoing between the ethanol industry and the FDA, but uh, right now they are sort of at an impasse. And it's probably going to take some time before we start seeing ethanol facilities making hand sanitizer again, which is going to worsen the shortage of hand sanitizer out there in the grocery store. So it's uh, frustrating Mm -hmm. all the way around. It certainly is. It certainly is. Another thing that is frustrating all the way around, Mike, is really the lack of clarity that we've received about the Defense Production Act that President Trump enacted on 
Tuesday, Tuesday, Monday. Anyways. Um, so one thing we do know, and one quick update I have to add to that piece of news is that essentially it sounds like, as I think you and I have discussed, USDA now has the authority to monitor and evaluate what's going on in those processing facilities. They specifically have the ability now and are requiring those processing facilities to create what they're calling a mitigation plan. And they have to provide this mitigation plan, a written document to the USDA, which will in terms also be sent to the Labor Department and the CDC. So officials will review that documentation. They will also provide it to state and local authorities and that is their plan to ensure that these facilities can resume is essentially, from what I understand, putting in place some sort of plan, whether it's PPE or distancing their workers or whatever. The USDA is now requiring all of these facilities to put this plan together, send it to all these entities, and then I think they're good, as long as their plan is approved, to reopen those facilities. Well, hopefully that'll help uh, put some more certainty back into the industry and let some of these plants get back up and going because, man, this backlog of hogs waiting for slaughter has really been incredible. Although, I will say, and listeners, if you have experienced this, I'd love to hear about it in person. I have just seen it shared on social media. Several farms across the country, in Indiana, in Minnesota, in South Dakota, have, uh, if their hog barns are full and they've got market weight hogs that need to move, they've thrown out there, you know, live hogs for sale, call our farm, bring a trailer up, come and get them. We'll show you where to make the cuts if you want to process on your own. And the stories I've seen, all show that there has been really strong consumer demand of folks coming out and loading up hogs on these operations. So I'm excited to hear from somebody. If you've done this, mm-hmm. uh, drop us a line. Find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Just look up Ag News Daily. Uh, let us know if this is something you've done and, and whether or not it worked because, you know, heck, anything we can do to, to get these animals back into the food supply is a big win for helping, you know, try to keep us current. Yeah, not only that, but with these facilities opening or reopening back up, hopefully our unemployment claims will also go down as more Americans are starting to see the system reopen. But we got a jobs number here. Bloomberg reported this. Jobs claims over the last six weeks have totaled above 30 million people since the coronavirus pandemic has shuttered our country down into submission. We'll see another job report or an unemployment report, if you will, next Friday, May 8th. So it's going to be interesting to see what those numbers show. And will people be returning to work soon? Will they not be? These are really, I think, the some of the highest levels, if not the highest level we've seen for unemployment. Yeah, highest by a long shot. Highest by, I believe, a factor of about okay. 15. So, I mean, these are these are absolutely mind-boggling rec- uh, numbers of unemployed Americans. And you're right. Hopefully, with some states starting to reopen, maybe we'll see that number take a tick down. Just like earlier in the week, we saw gasoline demand take a tick higher as more folks apparently are getting out and driving. So, hopefully, this will be good news. Hopefully, we're coming to the end of this thing. Boy, we were sick of talking about coronavirus eight weeks ago. Now we are really sick of talking Mm. about it would love to see the economy be able to move on and find some strength delaney i know i certainly would for sure and i've got an update on a story i've been talking about for the better part of this last week um I, i mentioned that a lot of meat producers down in brazil have been salivating 
at the prospect of gaining more market share in the U.S. as our meat facilities close. With the backlog of animals on farms, with the potential of or the ongoing depopulation of both poultry and hog herds across the country, Brazilian packers said they were ready and willing to step up and start shipping Brazilian meat into the U.S. Of course, that is not news that a lot of American producers want to hear. Well, it sounds as though those Brazilian packers might be in the same boat that the American packers are. It was reported earlier today that health authorities in Brazil's southernmost state of Rio Grande do Sul announced that coronavirus has now spread to nine different meat processing plants. They say that some 16,345 people have been exposed to the virus. Uh, there have been a number of deaths. Uh, there have been 124 confirmed cases of the disease amongst workers in those meat facilities. They are now, just like they did in the U.S., focusing testing on meat packing plants. And this could throw a wrench into those Brazilian packers to start exporting more meat if, like what happened here in the U.S., public pressure forces them to shut those plants down. Uh, we'll have to see how this ends up playing out. I will continue to keep an eye on this story because I think it's fascinating. And I really hope for the sake of American producers, we don't start importing a lot of Brazilian beef. And this outbreak is one thing that could certainly put it in check. It certainly could, but that is not great for uh, U.S. beef producers, if that's the case. Um, yeah, if the exports start coming through, right. it would not be, would not be no. great news. No, it won't. Well, we, another thing we continue to watch on the export side of things, or really the trade scene itself, are our dairy-producing friends that have to use things or don't want to use things called geographical indicators, which are essentially indicators for mostly cheese and wine products that are designated based off of where they are actually made. And so this has been a big sticking point in negotiations that we've had with the EU and other countries because a lot of countries abide by the EU's protection GIs. And so Robert Lighthizer of the U.S. Trade Representative's office has said that he is really focused at knocking down these GIs to protect food names like feta, gorgonzola, asiago, etc. And so I don't really know exactly how this process works, but he's filing something called a special 301 report on intellectual property violations to single out the way that the EU is protecting these geographical indicators. Uh, what that means for U.S. and others moving forward, still don't really know. They're filing this report. What they do after that, I don't really know. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it because, yeah, GIs are certainly a sticking point in the world of global trade. You know, I know American producers make really good Parmesan cheese, but if the EU has their way, they won't be able to call it Parmesan. Right. They have to call it imitation Parmesan or Parmesan-like or something yes. like that. And uh, so hopefully, hopefully Robert Lighthizer can, uh, I don't know, bash some heads into a wall and get things squared away. <laughs> That's very nice. Very good way to put it. He seems like a tough dude. Yeah. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Today's farm equipment is chock full of ability, and for you to get the most from it, consider these simple tips. 
read the owner's and operating manual when you get the machine, and then again after you have experienced some seat time. Once you are familiar with many of the features, the manual will now make more sense. Do not try to master all the capabilities from day one. Concentrate on the basics that you need to get going, and once you have them down pat, explore other settings and functions. Take advantage of any training the manufacturer or dealer offers. If need be, attending the class multiple times, even if you must travel a great distance. I have seen so many farmers that did not hesitate to write a big check to make a purchase, but put little to no effort to learn to get the best ROI from it. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles. Well, I tell you what, uh, I know a lot of our farmer friends are tough dudes as well, but they've got to be pretty glad to see prices moving into the green today for most commodities. Delaney, what do you say? Should we jump in and check out market pricing? Let's do it. All right, folks, as we look at the grains, we are green all the way down the screen in the grain markets today. July corn up five and a half cents at 320 even. December up three and three quarters to close at 337 and a quarter. Soybeans were the big gainer on the day. The July was up 17 at three quarter cents. Strong export news really is propelling all these markets higher. The July closed at 855 and a quarter. Well, new crop November was up 13 and a half, finishing at 857 and three quarters. Wheat also higher on the day. The July was up seven and three quarters to finish at 524 and a quarter, while the December was up five and three quarters, closing at 536 and a quarter. Jumping over into the world of livestock, we had mixed trade in the cattle complex. Live cattle were stronger. Well, feeder cattle saw some weakness. June live cattle up $1.6750 at 8595. The August up $1.3250 to close at 9210. In feeders, that May contract was down a dollar forty-five at one seventeen ten, with the August down a dollar ninety-five, closing the day at one twenty-six fifty. Hogs, another big mover on the day, and big move to the upside. The June contract was up three dollars forty-two and a half cents to finish at fifty-eight ninety-five, while July was up two dollars two and a half cents to close at sixty fifty. One of the other industries that did not get much wind at its back today was the dairy market. In class three milk, the May contract was down 26 cents at 11.38, with the June down 23 to close at 12.40. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Well, Mike, I had a great conversation with Josh Haslin, who is the senior research analyst for Lux Research, talking about protein changes and how COVID-19 has been changing consumer protein needs. They've done a recent report and he chats a little bit more with me about that. Well, as we continue to discuss alternative protein markets, I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, which is Josh Haslin, Senior Analyst for Lux Research. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with us. Thanks, Delaney. I'm very excited to be here. So Josh, before we dive into the nitty gritty of talking about plant-based proteins and some of the research that you guys have done there at Lux, tell our listeners about Lux and the space that you fill doing research. Yeah, absolutely. So so Lux Research, we're we're a global leader in research and advisory solutions for Fortune 1000 companies. And, And really what that means is that we help our clients innovate smarter in a number of different technology sectors, and and those include mobility, materials, energy, digital innovation, and and where I focus my time 
on what we call the emerging ecosystem of agri-food and health. And so for the last two years, I've been helping lead our coverage in that area. And, and I also have a, a very strong focus on agri-innovation in that area. Very neat. Okay. And so one of the most recent studies you guys have been working on was a report called Plant Proteins, Present and Future. Walk our listeners through that research and maybe some of the quick findings that you had. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this research, just give a shout out to, to my colleague, Tommy Hayes. Tommy Hayes led this research and I, I helped contribute uh, along with another colleague, Sarah Olson. And, you know, what we did was, was looked at some of these unprecedented commercial activity in, in plant proteins we've been seeing. So I'm sure people have heard of, of Beyond Meat and, and you know, their IP in May of 2019. And so what we did was build off that. And, and we looked at 24 different proteins uh, across the choices possible and, and use that in concert with the industry trends that we had been monitoring in order to, to really break down and identify different attributes to consider as you know, the future of our protein ecosystem changes. And, and I think on, on a high level, what we were able to find were, were three things that, that sit out. So the first, I think, is that there's protein source diversity growing. Now, the second is that scalability is a major challenge uh, and, and something to look at as an opportunity in the future. And then lastly, uh, this idea of regional resiliency of protein sources. So, so I'll kind of break those down a little bit for you. Um, yeah, and I want to ask, about, a, yeah, I ask just a quick clarification question. When you say you looked at 24 different types of protein, we're talking plant-based proteins here, right? No animal proteins were involved? Yeah. No animal proteins were involved in the, in the making of this uh, report. Got it. Um, and so, right, so I was, I was getting to kind of breaking down each of those three areas that I, that I talked about. Um, and so we took a acreage-focused um, approach as we looked at these, and, and what we have uncovered is, you know, overall when we think of protein, that ecosystem is changing from companies that are, you know, considered a, a meat company or, or plant-based protein company to a protein-based company, right? And so we've seen through our research that, you know, it's not just that plant-based companies are, are gaining entrance into these markets. It's that the markets are changing. And with that, right, large competitors like Tyson, Smithfield Foods, right, they're engaging these spaces as well and building out their capacity to, to enter into these markets because protein diversity is important. It's, and, and I, you know, as, as much as people like to say, and I think, uh, you know, you'll see in lots of different media coverage, you know, that one protein is going to replace another protein. I think the advantage here is about choice. And that's really what we're seeing. You know, there's going to be more choices in the future. And obviously these plant-based, these different sources of plant-based protein provide uh, different choices out there, but you know what it comes down to is: Are these companies able to to capture that opportunity, right, and be a part of this this uh, expanding of choices? And I think that probably a lot of our farmer listeners, especially those that farm animals or livestock, that's mm -hmm. a c common concern: is that these new plant-based proteins, although of course we do grow 
plants as well on a lot of farms and a lot of these mm-hmm. proteins. But that the fear is that it will replace animal proteins. But tell us a little bit more about why you think those proteins will work in tandem as opposed to one stomping out the other, to use a lack of a better term. Right, right, right. And, and I think, you know, it, it has, as industries go, right, it comes down to consumer choice. And I'm not saying, you know, there's not a, a large consumer push for, for what people would like to call, you know, more sustainably produced things or, 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 or less impact. I mean, there's lots of ways for the production of animals to be sustainable, right? So I'm not, I'm not claiming that any one of these is, is more or less sustainable necessarily than the other, given it just depends on the practices selected, right? Um, but what I do think is happening is, you know, we're still seeing, you know, a number of, a large amount of people out there, right, still selecting meat choices. So you could see how fast things are moving off the counters out there, right? And uh, the, the disruptions that we're seeing, let's say for COVID, aren't necessarily around consumer choices, right? They're around facility management, right? And, and, and around, you know, managing uh, the spread of, let's say, a particular disease in a facility. They, have, they don't have as much to do with consumer choices. And so I think, you know, in the long term, people are going to continue to choose meat. Um, and I think there's lots of cases out there to support the choice for meat in the future. But, you know, this is something that will add competition. And I think that is the point to remember, right? This is, this is something that's going to add competition. So, you know, we're at that moment where you can either decide not to be a player in how things are changing or to be a player in how things are changing. Yeah. And like you said there, I think COVID-19 is really just throwing everything through a loop because you go to the grocery store, the meat counters are sparse, which could be a product of grocery stores not filling them completely. It could also just be consumers are buying stuff off the shelves. But how do you see COVID-19 changing and shaping consumer patterns moving forward? Yeah, and when we think about this, I mean, this is a hard question. I think it's the question everybody wants answered, right? <laughs> you know, what, what, how, does, how is COVID changing our lives and our behaviors? And, and, and for me, uh, I can speak to my personal experience. And I think, you know, I want, you know, fresh food that's healthy, right? And I think that that is something that continues to be pushed forward and, you know, we can speak about diets however you want, but what it comes down to is a balanced diet in the end, right? And we can get lots of our nutrition from a balanced diet and lots of information out there about that. And I think, you know, all of these protein sources are part of that. And the thing that's happening, you know, from COVID is can you balance that at home? Again, I think this still comes down to having adequate choices. And I think, you know, as this, industry continues to emerge, right? There will be more choices and I'll just keep reiterating and I think the competition will be there, but I still don't believe these are necessarily replacements. You still will have the choices available, but there will be added competition. Well, Josh, we've certainly appreciated your insight today. Before I let you go, if we have listeners that are interested in reading through this report themselves, so how can they find that? Yeah, so um, they can reach out to myself. Um, so that's, that's one way, uh, joshua.haslin at luxresearchinc.com. Um, you can also come and, and find our website. 
um, which is LexResearchings.com. And so that's a very good way to see what we do, the types of information we offer. And then on there, you can find things like blog uh, information. And we've produced and, and a lot of different content we put out there. But uh, what it comes down to, I think, is just reaching out, saying hello. Um, again, you know, this is one area we cover. And I think we've kind of touched on a very small aspect of this. Uh, there's, you know, the genetic changing of our crops in the future and crop developments that are all working to increase protein that maybe I think should be more on the, the minds of growers and farmers and agribusinesses out there and how to you know think about changing those in the future and, and identifying the right crops for the right environment for the emerging industries in the future. Well, fantastic. We certainly have appreciated you joining today. Josh, thank you so much. Thank you, Delaney. Well, again, a big thank you there to Josh. Go ahead and find that report if it's of interest to you. But we're always bringing interesting things here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. If you've got comments, questions, or recommendations for future guests you'd like to hear us bring on the podcast, feel free to reach out to us at Ag News Daily on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram, or you can always find us and catch up on past episodes you might have missed by heading to agnewsdaily.com. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Well, let's let them go. Let's let them go.